The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Season 4 of The Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom, where we discuss business agility through customer experience, employee experience, and digital transformation. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom. The Agile World Podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full-stack technology services, talent services, and real-world application. For more information, go to techsystems.com. To read more about the topics discussed on this show, you can go to my website at gregkillstrom.com and read my latest articles or get a copy of my latest book, Meaningful Measurement of the Customer Experience, now available on Amazon and other retailers. Today we're going to talk about lean customer experience and how companies of all sizes can continue to deliver valuable customer experience, regardless of their stages of growth. To help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome Robert Dew, partner of Capfeather Global and co-author of Lean CX, How to Differentiate at Low Cost and Least Risk. Robert, welcome to the show. Oh, Greg, thank you very much for having me. It's pretty good to be in such an esteemed company of people that know a lot about CX and, and know a lot about lean processes, so it's, it's nice to be here. Wonderful. Well, yeah, no, looking forward to talking with you. So why don't you start by giving a little background on yourself and what you're currently doing? Well, as, as you said, I'm one of the founding partners at, at Catfeather Global. We work to help companies who've stalled um, improve their customer experience so that they can grow. And right now, some of the projects that we're working on, um, we're helping a national removalist firm reinvent themselves. They want to have an ongoing relationship with their customers rather than just kind of being chirped, you know, called up once every seven years when someone moves house. Um, we're also working for a residential aged care charity to access alternative revenue sources. Right now they rely on government funding and they'd like to work out how to be a bit more direct in what they're doing so they can be a bit self-determining and protect themselves against the inevitable budget crunch that COVID's bringing. Um, we're helping university import, Im implement a platform for students to provide tier one to support to each other to reduce their support costs. So that's kind of cool, helping students hack the university system with each other. Um, and then um, my, maybe the most weird thing that I'm working on right now is um, my PhD is in um, cognitive psychology, but I have uh, my first degrees in physics and mathematics and I've got a coding background. So I'm trying to teach a chatbot with AI how to use hypnosis to help salespeople get better conversion in complex sales. So pretty broad, um, pretty broad background, if that helps you. Nice, nice. That's that's great. Well, hey, that that hypnosis topic. We we need to do another show about that topic. But um, first things first. Um, so yeah, let's let's start by um, we want to talk about lean CX today. So let's uh, let's start by defining what we mean by lean CX. So why don't you define that for the audience? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting um, idea, and this is our definition, which we kind of get. I guess it's nice to be able to start the definition because we invented it, but Lean CX is the process we use to help companies find a way to innovate and grow, particularly when they're in a crowded market. If you think about most markets that exist right now, they're either already oversupplied or, or they're going to be. Now, how do we do that? How do we help companies grow with Lean CX? Well, we combine applied customer psychology and design thinking 
and we add that into the lean startup methodology. And what we're trying to do is find an improvement in the, both the top and the bottom line. Now, unlike a lot of the other CX management approaches that probably you know the listeners to the podcast know, we're not talking about improving customer satisfaction. We're not trying to you know reduce friction or, or do cost reduction. It's really about finding a profitable niche in that crowded market, and, and that's what we call an adjacent market position. So it's a it's a level up from customer journey management, which is a bit tactical. So a really easy way to describe that is if your business was a bakery, well, you already know how to bake bread and you know how to take an order for a kid's birthday cake, and you probably know what gets people in your store, all right? right, right. And there are lots of there are lots of bakeries out there who can do that. But here's the interesting question for you is what about the customers who won't even come into your store? You know, could you be the bakery, for example, that offers um, gluten-free bread, or could you be one that specializes in catering the adult birthday party? Or maybe people come into your store because they like how you're helping the local community school make sure that the kids have got lunches and stuff, you know? Yeah. LinSex is about finding that cut through that can scale. It's the nearby market segment and it's the evolved customer value proposition, the AMP, if you like, or the, the adjacent market position. And LeanSex is the process to get there. What are some of the challenges that larger companies run into that cause them to get to a place where they're not able to be lean and, and do what you're talking about? The, the two biggest challenges, I think we would call them language and risk. Now, um, I'm going to talk about the risk one first. So let's start with that. Large firms become large because they develop a kind of corporate immune system that protects them against risk. If the, one of the guys that I wrote about this, Les McEwen, did some talks for Google and he wrote a book called um, you know, Predictable Success, really great framework about how companies get to there, really like that. So the problem is, you know, avoiding risk is a good thing, right? But if something's good, then more of it may not be better. So in large companies, you see they set up stage gates, they have approval levels, they need business cases and market analysis and tech feasibility assessments and many other bureaucratic things that are about avoiding risk. But in practice, all that happens is they effectively stop anything new getting done. And I'm sure right. everyone's right. been in a company that's that's kind of like this. Lots of times we're victims to this this kind of stuff, uh, particularly um, in with, with you know with public services. They often have really big problems with this. So it's like the organisation's so concerned about getting an infection from something new that they can't leave their protective bubble and they're isolated from their customers. So the lean alternative is really powerful because it's a different way of dealing with risk. It's faster and it's cheaper. And it's like getting a little exposure to build up your immunity before you kind of go outside and, and run around and, you know, and risk taking on something new. So that, that's kind of the risk problem. The, the second issue is, is a language problem that I think that many CX managers use. If you think about how corporates work, they make meaning out of their world in numbers. So you have to be able to show that your customer experience is not a cost center, but that it's a profit center. Now, this is a really weird thing, right? Because most CX managers wouldn't see themselves maybe as a as a, as a profit center, okay? They, they might see themselves as a support function. So we believe that you have to have an investment mindset where you can prove how a measured risk in improving your CX creates both a top line and a bottom line result. Now, the, now the higher that you go in a company, the more layers typically there are between you and the customers and the more the conversation becomes strategic and less less tactical. So it's not about this touch point, it's about what are we gonna do? And, and our experience is many CX pro, um, professionals struggle deeply with the idea that for others in the company, the only reason that we would do CX is to make money when, when they kind of feel like it's actually the right thing to do, right? You should just do it because it's a, it's a moral imperative. 
And that means they don't start out with the fluency in this kind of language of net present values and competitive advantage that really matters. They can learn it, but they often still seem like they're foreigners to the exec team and that they come into that conversation with a kind of accent, right? And so what we think is, is that it's that language gap you know, we're, we're all trying to do the right thing for the company, but it just looks different at different levels, you know, and it's a human focus if you're in CX, it's less than a, a numbers focus. So risk and risk and language, we think they're the biggest barriers. So kind of a good segue there, talking about measuring success. I mean, so you're, you know, you're mentoring, you're mentioning the dollars and cents, you're also mentioning the customer satisfaction and all that, you know, how... How do you think a, an organization should look at success and measure it in terms of, you know, a, a move to a more lean CX? Yeah, the, the, how, to measure, how to measure, you know, this kind of success thing is a really great question. And I, I would love to have got this beautiful package and tied up in a bow and hand it to you and go, ta-da! Um, the, the problem is there's not really one neat answer to this question. So we try and look at it. At a, at a level up. So the, our meta level way of thinking about this is to start with, okay, how do you normally measure customer experience? And, and your listeners would understand we've got three kind of measures. We've got customer effort score, satisfaction, and, and net present value, right? Now, each of these corresponds to something that you're trying to achieve, right? So if, if you want to do, if you're trying to do simplicity, then you're going to be measuring effort score. And, and that's great as a hygiene factor at scale, but there's no differentiation from that. Everyone can make it simpler, right? So then the second thing is, um, you know, you want to measure satisfaction and that's great. You know, satisfying sex is really great because what you're doing is you're comparing the experience that you're delivering to the customer's expectation, right? And, and sadly, we often see that expectation management's easier, easier than satisfying delivery, right? But let, let's not right. go there. That's a kind of thing another day. Then we're back in the hypnosis place there. Right, right. NPS has been really successful as a measure because it actually gives you the only chance to measure surprise. So an eight out of 10 for NPS is probably a 10 out of 10 for satis customer satisfaction. So what's a nine or a 10? Well, that's when you surprise the customer. And we like surprising customers in a good way because then we get referral, right? And that's ultimately what we'd like our, our customer experience thing to do maybe, right? The problem with um, customer effort score or satisfaction or NPS is that they ignore costs and revenues. And at best, they're an indirect proxy for return on investments. So we've kind of got this in the middle halfway house that I want to suggest to you. And it, it comes out of the lean startup stuff um, that, you know, Eric Rice talked about, which I really liked. And you, you've probably heard of the pirate metrics by, by McClure. Have you? Not Troy McClure out of the Simpsons, the other McClure. Uh, I love the pirate metrics. Arrgh, right? So, yeah. So, so acquisition, the first A, we're trying to attract new customers. Activation, onboarding them to get to revenue fast. Um, revenue, obviously, getting them to choose better and more valuable experiences because that's better for the, the company's return, helps us be more profitable. Um, retention, keeping our relationships so customers become repeat customers. And then referral, you know, doing stuff that's remarkable enough to share to other customers so that we can attract new customers to have a relationship with. Now, the links between traditional CX metrics, the pirate metrics and, and return on investment, they're always situation specific. So sure, um, customer effort score can reduce your friction and that might be great for activation. How does that translate to the bottom line? That's the kind of success thing that you've got to do. You know, NPS is way more relevant to referral, okay? But both um, activation and referral are much easier to link to the top and bottom line financial results than just trying to go straight from say NPS or CES or, or, or SAT. So 
Yeah, it's not a neat answer. We normally look at those three kind of levels and we normally try and start with that pirate metric as what are you trying to achieve and can I connect that? How to do it better is the kind of traditional CX side and how to turn it into financial results. That's kind of the rest of the language you need to get your initiative supported. Let's go into a couple um, real world examples here to illustrate um, illustrates Lean CX. So. Um, as a B2B example, when we talked prepping for the show, you mentioned an example about packaging and craft brewers. Um, why don't you go into a little, a little detail about that and, and, and talk about how, you know, how it was effective. Really compelling for us is that about two thirds of economic activity is actually B2B, not B2C, right? But often the media wants to talk about the B2C stuff. So it's right. great to start with a B2B example. Um, Fiber King's a client of ours. They're a 94-year-old fourth-generation company. They've got a multi-million dollar turnover, national footprint, and they make machines designed to replace human labor on production lines. So um, for a large brewing company, for example, they could provide the case packers that put cans and bottles um, into, the, into boxes and then take the filled boxes that are sealed up and put them onto pallets so that they can go to transport and they call that machine a palletizer. Right. Now, now, the problem is you can only sell so many million dollar production into production line setups, right, to the big end of the market because there's only a handful of potential clients there and you're building your brand around making gear that lasts 10 or 15 years, right? So it's, it's not like you've got lots of replacements and, and upgrades that you can do. In, in recent growth in the beer market, which is one of their verticals, um, all of the growth has been in craft brewing, which, which actually invented in Colorado, reinvented in Colorado. Arguably, my Belgian friends would say they invented craft brewing, but um, everyone I met in Colorado when I was there said, "No, no, no, we invented craft brewing." I think. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but that whole movement that started there has happened here in a big way. We've got more than six hundred craft brewers and four hundred distillers in Australia um, right now. Now, craft brew is really similar to a major beer brewing company. It's just they operate at a, at a way lower scale. Now, they typically only have um, one guy packing cases rather than, you know, a team of people packing cases at the end of the line. So if they buy a case packer, they're going to be looking at more than an eight-year payback. And economically, that's that's just not viable then. So Fiber King needed to work out how to create an offer that could work for that nearby segment. So they know all about what the craft brewers are doing. It's just that it's a totally different scale, right? So their solution was to evolve their product actually by devolving it and they built a thing called the little packer now this is a slower and less flexible standard um, you know um, standard case packer but importantly it's smaller um, which fits with the craft brewer's footprint but it's way cheaper um, if it can save the craft brewer just one person on their line they'll get a payback in in just two and a half years and that's a totally different value proposition now if you think about it this is an exactly an adjacent market position, yeah? Craft brewers are kind of beside their current target segment and this product is not exactly what they sell now. It's a kind of evolved version of their product and that's an adjacent market position. So pretty cool example. We like to talk to clients about that a lot because it, it sort of explains what we really love to do is find stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, that's great. So how, how about a B2C example? Yeah, so we talked about a, a car insurance company here. These guys aren't a, aren't a client of ours, but we admired so much of what they did accidentally that I really love it as, yeah. as an example. Um, and it, it's good when you talk about other people because you're not betraying commercial and confidence stuff for your client. Right, right. <laughs> so I want to talk about NRMA. They're a really large car insurer here. And you can imagine, Greg, that 
COVID put them into emergency mode. So people aren't driving their cars because either they're locked down or they're just worried about uh, about the infection. Um, you know, some of them are worried about losing their jobs. Some of them did lose their jobs. Plenty of them feel like, hey, maybe we need to cut back because the world's so uncertain. You know, what are we going to do? And so, of course, when it came to renewing their comprehensive car insurance, many of them were going, they're, they're opting out, right? Now, for, for NRMA, this is like, uh, a scary circumstance for them because the breadth of their book really matters to make sure that their that their business is profitable and viable and that they can cover all of their liabilities. So, almost in desperation, what they did is they developed the last chance offer, and it was again, it was a, interestingly enough, it's a cut down product here. And what they really offered, they said, look, no commitment, month to month, we're just going to offer you a really low premium, but we're only going to cover fire theft and, and third party property damage. That, that's all we're going to, we're all going to cover. Now, and sure, they were happy in retaining a bunch of customers on this lower level product, which is great. But what's really amazing is their inbound inquiry increased 500% when they released this product. And the reason they did is that they'd actually discovered a segment of the market nearby the comprehensive insurance segment of the market who'd always wanted this lower level, cheaper product um, covering, right? They'd always wanted this. Think about it. My car's not worth very much. So I don't, I don't really care about if I damage the car, if it's right. total, I can't afford to buy a new one. So I need to cover for that. I, if I crash into a BMW or a Mercedes, I really don't want to be um, on the hook for that. And, and that's the kind of car that my, maybe my first teenager gets. So that's the insurance, you know, that I want to put on that. And so they found this adjacent market position almost by accident. Now, LeanCX had to do this on purpose, but I think it's really cool, right? So it's a pirate metric. We want to retain customers. We change our customer value proposition to do that. And then we discover this nearby market segment that's been there all along. Car insurance is a massively overcrowded vertical, right? Been there all along, but no one's been offering the right product for it. So um, let's let's switch gears a little bit here. Talk about your book, um, Lean CX: How to Differentiate at Low Cost and Least Risk. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about what what did you want to achieve by by writing the book? What was your goal? Yeah, it's the same as I guess it's the same thing when you kind of set a goal like this. You've kind of got a personal goal and a, and a business goal. I suspect you guys are more interested in the the business goal rather than the kind of personal therapy we were going through to get this thing out. You know, um, you can so, talk a little bit about each. That's fine. <laughs> I, I want to talk more about that. I want to talk more about the business stuff. I, th I think it's more relevant, right? So. We worked in customer experience for 10 years here in Australia, um, had done a lot of work um, in different agencies before we founded Catfeather. And while the clients were happy with the work that we did and they're really happy to pay and, and we had lots of repeat business, we just didn't feel that they were getting the value out of customer experience that they, that they could be. And I want to give an example of kind of one of the absolute coolest things that I had done that I'd seen um, in the States. I'm sure you're aware of a company called T-Mobile. Okay, now these guys got us really interested in what CX could do because they grew from like 33 million customers to about 70 million customers in, in five years. And they talked about, you know, being the uncarrier carrier and making uncarrier moves. And it was all around um, CX. But at its core, it was two really simple things. One was not trying to extract as much um, profit out of their, their customers with a billion different rate plans and upgrade things and all the tricky little fine print and sneaky conditions and stuff. So that was one thing. And the second thing was just to reduce friction overall, whether it came to, you know, inquiring about a new handset or getting on, you know, getting on their, their network or getting support or whatever it is. They just wanted to, to lower friction. 
Now, they did, they did those things and got this amazing growth, and we hadn't seen customers in Australia be able to get that same kind of growth, right? And we're trying to work out, well, what's the, you know, what's the difference? Is the difference that, you know, Americans are different or is the difference that, you know, CX means something different in Australia or is it different that something special about T-Mobile? And, um, and we, we started to have a think about and research seriously, um, you know, what was, what was our, you know, what was the solution to this, to this strategy problem, right? My market's crowded. How do I grow? Because, in crowded markets, there are companies that still manage to grow. I mean, Amazon's the poster child for this. $3.7 billion 15 years ago has never grown at less than 20% a year, and some years has grown more than 40 every year, right? Now, you can't find a, you can't find a company in Australia uh, in our stock market in the 2,160-odd uh, companies that are listed here. You can't find easily one of them that's of any size that's grown successfully even 10% three years in a row pre-COVID. And, and so we, when we wrote the book, we kind of suspected that, you know, CX was the current way to solve that strategy problem of growth in a crowded market. And we wanted to get down, we wanted to get down our thoughts about how to do it. We want to take some of the t thinking for 10 years and, and get them down on paper. And so that, that was really what we're trying to do. And I think I'm, we're pretty happy with the result actually. Yeah. What did you, um... What did you learn during the process of, of writing? I mean, you, you had a premise that you were, you know, yeah. that you were um, going after, but, you know, what was some of the learning that, that happened during the process? Yeah, so this is one of those things where, um, like, if I, when I used to teach MBAs um, at, at, at business schools around the world, I said to them, look, I can save you 50 grand in three years by giving you the whole MBA in, like, three sentences. And they're like, what is it, right? So the, in, in the case of the MBA, it's like, well, the answer to any questions, um, it depends. The trick is knowing what it depends on. So there's some detail into that, but you'll get some of that. Nice. The second thing is, is that, um, you know, if you want something done right, you probably need to do it yourself. But um, in any kind of organization, because you can't do that, don't expect too much. And that kind of explains the, the whole MBA. So I, I'm at risk of doing the same thing here. This is a gross simplification, Greg, but it is the kind of core thing that we learned. We found what we think is a formula for sustained growth. And it seems to have been pretty useful as and, and pretty durable right now eventually it won't be durable but right now this is the kind of way to do it and here's the key bit and, and this is going to shock some people it's not about doing business as usual better okay with all due respect to good to great and and, and yeah, you know yeah. all that stuff that's out there um we spend more than a year looking at the large established companies with better than 10 percent growth top line and the common formula we found has five bits to it okay the first one is they were all growing through an improved and a superior customer experience, but it was not the tactical touch point stuff that they were doing. They were creating a superior value proposition. And sometimes that was an emotional value proposition. And sometimes it was a more fulfillment community-based value proposition. And sometimes it was actually just a hardcore, you know, cost-effective economic benefit value proposition, right? Okay, but in every case, it was wrapped up in an experience. So that was the first thing. The second thing was they were delivering this by combining digital and human. And if I was to look at the big end of town in Australia right now, my biggest criticism is um, there's this idea that we're going to spend a fortune on upgrading our digital platform, remove humans from the process, and, and we're going to succeed by, by doing that. 
the problem is there's no differentiation in that. No one's worked out how to effectively differentiate a, a you know a, a digital platform in a way that makes sense. Um, I, I think my best example of that is you know watching um, watching you know. I guess Snapchat managed to take some of Facebook's market after they kind of owned the market for, for social media, right? And, um, and so what we learned is, is that the second part is you have to combine digital and human to deliver that superior experience and, and value proposition. You couldn't just do it digital only, right? But digital was a part of it because it gave you a cost benefit you couldn't get um, otherwise. Now, now, if you think about what companies are doing, linking those together is non-trivial, right? You've got to have some experts, you know, on the kind of, coding autism side and some experts on the kind of human empathy side and you've got to link them together, right? The third thing is, is that we always found the growth didn't come from the existing target segments with the same product. Either they found this nearby set of, it wasn't foreign customers, but it was nearby customers that they weren't serving. And it was an offer that was evolved from their current offer, right? And, and this was really important. Sometimes they did both, right? But they were kind of doing that stuff. And that meant the fourth thing, they were creating this in the middle uh, innovation. It's kind of like this, the idea of a Goldilocks zone, yeah? If you go closer to the sun than the earth, it's it's too hot to have life. And if you go further out, it's too cold. There's this kind of zone just in the middle, not too hot, not too cold. We found that's the same with innovation, right? It had to be more than an incremental BAU uh, uplift, like, but it had to be less than the kind of moonshot, which gets all of the, the kind of successful full credit stuff was in the middle zone mattered. And then the last bit is, um, you had to be pre prepared to test this in market on a small on a small pilot, right? To prove you, that, that you're going to get cut through, to prove you're going to get your customers to take it up, and you could get value out of it before you scaled. And so that was why the lean part of this became critically important. It was the only way that we could kind of disarm that corporate immune system to say, hey, no, look, we've we've got the evidence, we've got the numbers on a small scale to say this is worth doing in a bigger way. And yeah, we, we get it that it's different, right? It's not just an incremental change here, but it's not a moonshot. We could actually do this. We've already proven that we can on a small scale. Now let's let's scale it, right? Now that formula, improve your CX with a superior value proposition, combine digital and human, target a nearby customer segments, not your current customers with an evolved product. Um, make sure that the level of change you're doing is not a moonshot, but it's a bit more than incremental. It's somehow in the middle and test it first. That's the, that's the formula. Now we write in a lot more detail how to do that cleverly, but that's, that's what we learned. Um, I know the book was recently published, but you know, is there anything in your recent experience in the last few months that you wish you wish you would have added, or you're going to put in the second edition or anything like that, just based on recent events and, and everything like that. So we started kind of in doing in the last chapter of the book this idea about swarms as a way of thinking about strategy and and i, I really don't want to make everyone think that i'm um, you know that i'm a weirdo and i'm freaky at, uh, but it was a kind of a vision about what might be the way to move forward um surprisingly what we found in the meantime is that COVID kind of has upended everything for a bunch of our our customers and what's really what's really strange about COVID is that it kind of proves some stuff that i already knew even though you might think that it's an unprecedented um, situation. So I've never seen a situation where times are so good that some people aren't losing their shirt. And I haven't ever seen a situation where times are so bad that some people aren't making a fortune, right? Now, we've broadly got three postures of customers here. Some of them are trying to hide from the COVID impacts and they're just trying to hunker down until it's, until it's over. Some of them are going, well, let's just wait for things to change and then we can act because things are going to change and we don't know how they're going to change, so let's wait. 
And then there's a third group that are going, hey, everything's changing right now. This is the best opportunity we've got to steal a march on our competitors. And the most important thing that I didn't realize when we were writing the book is actually COVID really doesn't matter, right? It's not the outside world that actually matters from what we've seen with companies that are successful. It's not whether it's been a help or a hindrance for their business. It's actually whether or not internally the management team felt that this was an opportunity because the teams that thought it was an opportunity, they actually turned it into an opportunity. And so um, Fiverr King, that company I was telling you about the packaging machine, um, they've grown 220% in the last two years. COVID doesn't particularly help them or hinder them. Their infant formula manufacturers are way down, but their, their craft brewers, as we said, are way up. They just found out where the opportunity was and pursued it and built a better experience to get access to that. Well, um, one last question before we wrap up. Um, what's a resource you recommend besides your book? Definitely, I definitely recommend people buy your book, but uh, <laughs> what's a resource you recommend that the audience reads, watches, listens uh, in order to learn more about what we're talking about? So one of Cat Feather's um, satellite companies is called the CX Institute, and you can find us on the web at cx.institute. If um, the you know listeners on the podcast going forward slash um, to LeanCX, all one word, so cx.institute forward slash LeanCX. Um, we've got a training program there that they can have a look at. Um, it's um, if For those of you that need to do it in really serious detail and want to take months to get through LeanCX, great. Please go and buy the book and, and knock yourself out. But for those of you that want it way faster and you want to have worked examples and you want to be able to get through it and apply it directly to your business, we built this training course to just give people an, an option. So if you're a different kind of learner, um, then jump on. I've done a bunch of videos on there about how to do um, Lean CX. We've got a whole bunch of worked exercises and you can apply it directly to your own business. And at the end of that, um, we'll certify you as part of the CX Institute as a, as a Lean CX practitioner so you can add something to your resume. But way more important than that, you can pick up the skill set to do Lean CX if you're a professional in this area in, you know, in some hours of videos, you know. That's great. Well, uh, Robert, thanks so much for joining the show. Um, for those listening, what's the best way for them to keep up with you and what you're doing? Um, Cat Feather itself um, has a thing called the Cat Feather Edition. Um, it's a it's a free publication. We talk about customer experience. We talk about digital innovation. We talk about you know customer strategy, and we have new articles every month that come out on that. Love for customers to do that. Um, you can drop me a line at um, catfeather.global if you if you want to have a conversation. Would love to help. Um, but most importantly, the best thing I'd love to see is I'd love to interact with some of your listeners' companies someday and just have a better experience. That would just be the most awesome thing to get out of this. Wonderful. Well, again, I'd like to thank Robert Dew, a partner at Capfeather Global, for joining the show. Uh, please keep this conversation going um, by following the Agile World on LinkedIn, and then you can ask questions and commenting on our post about this episode, and we'll, uh, we'll interact with you there. Uh, thanks again for listening to the Agile World with Greg Kilstrom. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom podcast, brought to you by Tech Systems. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can access more episodes of the show at www.theagilebrand.show. To get a copy of my latest book, Meaningful Measurement of the Customer Experience, visit my website at gregkilstrom.com. Until next week, stay agile. You love podcasts, the stories, the laughs, the unexpected turns. But when this episode ends, the silence starts. Not anymore. Audiobooks.com turns that silence into your next great adventure. 
With over 450,000 titles, from bestsellers to hidden gems, your love for listening just found its new best friend. And because you already know the joy of audio, we're giving you three free audiobooks to start your journey. Imagine your favorite podcast, now with unlimited episodes. That's audiobooks.com. Keep the story going. Sign up for your free trial at audiobooks.com slash podcast free today. Because for podcast lovers like you, the end of an episode is just the beginning. That's audiobooks.com slash podcast F-R-E-E.